In some ways, you could describe the book of Hebrews as a sustained pep talk. The author is writing to Jewish followers of the Messiah, Jesus, who are tired. They're tired of the hostile treatment that they receive, the opposition from family, from friends, employers, neighbors. Lately, they've been shrinking from confrontations. They've been trying to blend in, so much so that the author is worried that they're going to fall away from Christ. So he tells them again and again to stay tough, to stick it out, not lose hope. Don't give up, he pleads. God will uphold you. We come to chapter 11, the Hall of Faith chapter. We need to read it in that light. The author trots out one biblical hero after another. We're going to look at some of them next week as examples, not just of faith, but of faithfulness. In fact, in Greek, the same word, pistis, means both. The men and women he mentions trusted God when things were tough, and because of that, they were able to stick it out. And so he urged these Jewish believers to follow their example. He knows that unless they stand firm in the faith, They're not going to stand firm at all. This is Bold Faith Month, but I think that's something of a misnomer. The men and women of chapter 11, they often displayed bold faith, but sometimes they displayed dogged faith, determined faith, insightful faith, hopeful faith. They weren't successful because they had bold faith, but because they had true faith, faith in the living God. Bold faith won't save anybody. But faith in the God who revealed himself in Jesus Christ will. Now, before we read our text, I want us to put ourselves in the place of the original recipients of this letter. Many of them were discouraged and afraid. Some of them had stopped meeting with the rest of the church on any kind of regular basis. Life was hard, and it had been hard, and they couldn't see that it was going to ever be easy. Some of them wanted to give up. Now you may be thinking, I don't need to put myself in their place because I'm already there. I'm tired, I'm discouraged, I'm afraid, and I just don't feel like doing it anymore. God knows that. So do I. I've been there too. And so has the author of Hebrews. He not only urges contemporaries to stay tough and not lose hope, he urges us. And faith is what's going to help us do that. If we won't stand by faith, we won't stand at all. Let's read our text. Put yourself in the place of these frightened, discouraged recipients of this letter. Or better yet, just stay where you are and hear these words as if they're meant for you as they surely were. Hebrews chapter 10, I'm going to start in chapter 10 to give us context and read from verse 36 through chapter 11, verse 6. You need to persevere. You need to persevere so that when you've done the will of God, you'll receive what he's promised. For in just a very little while, this is a quote from Habakkuk chapter 2, for in just a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay But my righteous one will live by faith, and if he shrinks back, I'll not be pleased with him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who believe and are saved. Now, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. 
This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. By faith, Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as a righteous man when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, he still speaks, even though he's dead. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And without faith, it's impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. 1036 sets the stage for us. You need to persevere. Perseverance is one of the most important character traits of a Christian. In the New Testament, the word perseverance or persevere, perseverance appears more than twice as many times as patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, or self-control. There's no success in the Christian life apart from perseverance. There's no spiritual maturity apart from perseverance. And there's no perseverance apart from conflict. But how do you persevere when you're hanging on by your fingertips and your brain is telling you to let go? Just get it over with and let go. The author of Hebrews has an answer. You persevere by faith. As soon as we stop exercising faith, our perseverance quotient falls through the floor. In verse 30, we shrink back. The Greek word that's used there only appears here in the New Testament. Scholars tell us that it points to something that is unreliable, unsteady, lacks stability. In other words, it points to us when we stop trusting God. Riding a bicycle is an illustration of what this looks like. As long as we're moving forward, we can keep both feet on the pedals and remain steady. But if we stop, it's impossible to keep both feet on the pedals without becoming unsteady and eventually falling. The Christian who is actively and repeatedly trusting God in his or her life can remain steady. But the one who stops actively trusting God will quickly become unsteady and almost immediately be in danger of falling. Now, I keep repeating the phrase actively trusting God because that's how faith is pictured in this letter. Our author does not use the word faith to describe a decision made a long time ago. Still less to describe a creedal statement to which someone ascribes. For the author of Hebrews, faith is dynamic. It's active. It's not something you did in the past and you're now beyond. It's something you do daily. You trust God. Our author doesn't ask if you put your faith in Jesus Christ. He wants to know if you're trusting Jesus Christ today. How does faith help us persevere? And for that matter, what is faith anyway? Is it just a way of talking about self-confidence? Or is it the same thing as positive thinking? The author knew his readers would be asking questions like those. So in verse 1, he begins an answer. And I say begins because verse 1 is only an introduction to the answer. The author uses it like a springboard to launch his readers into a prolonged description of what faith looks like and how it acts. If verse 1 were a definition... Of faith, And that's how some people take it. If it were a definition of faith, we'd have to admit it's a very incomplete one. It doesn't even mention God. But don't try to make verse 1 answer all our questions about faith. Our author didn't. 
So verse 1 says, now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. You need to know right up front, there's been a long history of debate over how to take two key words in that sentence. Either can be taken subjectively, as in the NIV that I just quoted, or objectively, as in the King James versions, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. I lean toward the latter the King James view of that verse. If that's the correct way to take it, we might translate it this way. Faith is the guarantee. That's how secular writers were using that word in the first century. Faith is the guarantee of hoped for things. The proof that unseen things are really there. Faith, I'm talking about real faith, is not just proof of our inward convictions, but of outward realities. But we're talking about real faith, not about positive thinking, not about self-confidence. Real faith, the kind that the author of Hebrews has in mind, always exists in a place where God and man meet. Real faith always requires interaction with God. Theologians have long questioned whether humans are capable of faith on their own or if faith is a gift of God that humans passively receive. And like most of those theological questions that people argue about ad infinitum and ad absurdum, they're trying to give a right answer to a wrong question. Faith doesn't come in a gift box. At least it's not something that God gives you that's yours to keep and use or not if you see fit. Faith comes as a result of interaction with the eternal God, an interaction that itself is a gift gracious and free. Faith cannot exist without that interaction. It is a response to the word that God graciously and marvelously speaks to people like us. And that means that you can't simply decide what you want or what you think is best and then have faith that it's going to happen. Biblical faith does not work that way. It is not a belief that something will happen, not even that your soul will be saved. It is not faith in something, but in someone. You cannot work up faith. You don't initiate it. It starts with God reaching out to you, speaking to you. We'll see that later in this chapter. Faith is then your response to him. It's not faith to say, I'm going to believe God for a new car unless God has actually spoken to you about a new car. It's not faith, it's just wishful thinking. Where real faith exists, God is always present. That's why faith is the evidence, to use the King James Version translation, of things not seen. If faith is there, the invisible God is there. What are the unseen things of verse 1? Now, they could include a car. I've told you my story about talking to God about a car. And God moves in mysterious ways, his wonders to perform, as Calvert put it. But that's not the kind of thing the author of Hebrews had in mind. For the author of Hebrews, the unseen things fall into two categories. The non-material and the material, both of which are mentioned repeatedly in this chapter. The non-material are spiritual realities and forces that exist outside our perception. This room may be, and I believe is, 
filled with such non-material spiritual realities of which God himself is first and most important. These non-material realities also include heaven and spiritual beings and forces that are imperceptible to our five senses. Those are one category of unseen things. The other category of unseen things are perceptible to our five senses. We can taste and touch and feel them, or at least they will be. The reason we can't taste and touch and feel them now is that they lie behind the curtain of the future. We can't see them with our eyes, not yet at least, but we can perceive them by faith. We can believe these realities will come about and even take part in bringing them about because of faith. So faith comes and connects us to two worlds, the unseen spiritual world that surrounds us and the unseen future world that's bearing down on us. And it takes both seriously. Faith changes what we do in the visible world because it's been touched by the invisible world. And it changes what we do in the present because it's been touched by the future. You could almost say that faith lives inside out and backwards. Inside out because for most people, the visible world is all that matters. Politicians and taxes and money and possessions. But faith turns that inside out. What matters is the invisible world. It's what God is doing that matters. So what God is doing is going to last. And, and backwards, inside out and backwards, backwards because faith lives out of the future. Most people live out of the past. They are simply the sum of what happened the moment before, the year before, the lifetime before. They're like a billiard ball that is where it is because of the cumulative effect of past actions. They are where they are and they are what they are because of countless past actions over most of which they exercise no, no control. But when a person has faith, something altogether new begins to happen. His life's not just informed by the past, but by the future. The future, or to be more precise, the God who is already in the future calls him and he follows That person is who he is and where he is, not just because of his past, but because of his future. That dynamic takes place when a person receives Christ as a Savior. He's being shaped by the future. It's almost like something out of a sci-fi movie. If we have genuine faith, we'll be shaped by unseen things, by the spiritual world around us and by the future before us. If a person is untouched by these things, there's good reason to question the genuineness of his or her faith. Or let me put it another way. Since we have no business questioning other people's faith, if the spiritual world around us and the future world before us makes no difference in my life or yours, we have reason to question the genuineness of our own faith. But that said, let me quickly add... Even people with genuine faith have to learn to fix their eyes, as St. Paul wrote, on what is unseen, and that takes practice. And most of us aren't very good at it, but we can get better. In verse 2, the author of Hebrews writes that faith is what the ancients, and literally the elders, were commended for. It was because of faith, verse 4, that Abel was commended as a righteous man. It's because of faith that Enoch was commended as one who pleased God, verse 5. Indeed, verse 6, without faith, it's impossible to please God. 
That line makes people ask, why? Why is faith the one thing that pleases God? Why won't he be pleased with kindness or generosity or sacrifice? Is it possible that God will turn away the guy who's too good a man to say that he believes when he doesn't? Is God going to reject him even though he gives his money to United Way and he fosters special need kids and he's been faithful to his wife for 50 years? How unfair is that? Why make faith the one condition on which everything else hangs? Why does God say, you can't please me without faith? You can't be saved without faith. The well-being of your eternal soul depends on faith. I'll never be pleased with you until you believe something you can't see and can never really understand. So if you want to please me, you're going to have to live inside out and backwards. And if you don't have faith, I'm going to shut the doors of heaven on you forever. Well, first of all, that's a caricature of what the Bible really says. Secondly, it's a distortion of what really happens. Of course it would be unfair for God, who will never be unfair. It would be unfair for God to demand that you believe in him if believing weren't possible. But believing in God's not only possible, it's natural when God takes the initiative and reaches out to us. That is, when he speaks to us. Under those circumstances, and those are our circumstances, it would be unnatural, it would be bent not to believe in God. It would be a sign that a person was bent in on themselves. What St. Augustine meant when he said that fallen human being is incurvatus in se. Curved in on himself. But you know what? We're all curved in on ourselves. That's the human condition since Adam. But when God speaks to us, we can open up like a morning glory opens at the rising of the sun, like a crippled man's hand opened at the word of Jesus. God is pleased by faith because faith opens our lives to him, allows him to enter our lives and allows us to become what we could never otherwise be. Nothing else can do that. That's why God is pleased with faith. Verse 6 implies that he's pleased when people come to him. I want you to think about that. God wants you to come to him. It pleases him when people come to him. I've known people who think that God can't stand them, would never forgive them, and doesn't want anything to do with them. Nothing could be further from the truth. God wants people to come to him. That's why he went to them in Christ and speaks to them by his spirit. But if you don't believe that God exists... And literally in verse 6, if you don't believe that God is, you won't come to him. And God really wants you to come. I like the next phrase in that sixth verse. Must believe that he exists, that he is, and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Literally, that he is a rewarder. It's a noun. He is a rewarder of those that seek him out. God's a rewarder. He loves to give people rewards. Do you think of him like that? He looks for reasons to do it. You know, there's some people, you can't pry a dollar out of their hands or a compliment out of their mouths, but God is not like that at all. He loves to hand out rewards. The end of that verse says that he hands out those rewards to people who earnestly seek him. 
I think I prefer the King James that diligently seek him because diligently speaks to our effort while earnestly speaks to our attitude. And I think this is about effort. Both translations render a single Greek word that implies exerting considerable effort in a search. See, because we are curved in on ourselves, the search for God is difficult. We have to scrabble out of ourselves, and that requires determined, intelligent effort. But it's God who calls us, God who helps us, God who receives us. He helps those who respond to his call. He does for them what they can't do for themselves. We don't have to be superhuman to succeed at this. We just have to be his. We'll never succeed if we're not his. Imagine a concave surface. So concave. So think of the inside of a satellite dish or the inside of a bowl. That's what our fallen human lives are like, curved in on the self. Now imagine that bowl a hundred times larger. With you at the bottom of it, how can you ever escape? How can you ever reach the rim of this concave life without sliding back in on yourself? There's only one way. By trusting God, believing his word, every single time you trust him, you climb further, or literally he pulls you further out of the self. And you know what that means, don't you? It means that your life gets a little bigger every time you trust God. When you're at the bottom of the self, there's not much room. You live a small, enclosed life. But as you trust God, and I'm not talking about the first time you trusted him when you believed on his son, but every time you trust him now, your life opens wider, just as the concave bowl opens wider as it reaches its rim. And then someday, by the grace of God and the work of his spirit, when Jesus returns or when we take leave of this world through death, we will peer over that rim. And what we see then, what will enrapture our souls and transform our being, will be the glory and the beauty and the goodness of the loving God who called us and helped us and is ready to reward us. All right, with that vision in mind, I call you to bold faith, to true faith. What you did when you trusted God in the beginning, when you put your faith in his son, is phenomenally important. Just as your conception in your mother's womb was phenomenally important. You wouldn't be here otherwise. But it was like your conception, only the beginning. God is speaking to you now. He wants you to trust him now. What's he been speaking to you? To take an enormous risk and go to someone whom you've hurt or who's hurt you and be reconciled? To invite a friend at work to come to church? Maybe that feels like a huge risk. Takes bold faith. To follow Jesus to Azerbaijan. These two are going to go see if God's calling them to the other side of the world. That's a step of 
bold faith to get involved in a ministry of the church, Awana, maybe, that seems too big, too scary for you, to give your money, to give your time, to forgive your spouse, to intentionally reach out to people you don't know. I don't know what God's been speaking to you, but I do know this. If you're his because of Jesus Christ, he has been speaking. Now, you may not have been listening, but he's been speaking. And that provides opportunity for you to trust him, which is the hugest thing going on. It's the opportunity for you to enter a larger life, to become more than you've ever been. Will you trust him? Will you take that step of bold faith? I said a few moments ago that we don't need to be superhuman to succeed at this. We just have to be his. But I know in a group like ours, not everyone is his. Some of you haven't crossed the line yet, haven't trusted Christ and given your life to him. Now, I don't play on people's emotions. But if that describes you, your first step of bold faith is to trust in Jesus Christ. If you've heard God speaking to you, you've heard him before now and you've been hearing him, now's the time. Faith is possible. Don't harden your hearts. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Instead, give your heart and your whole self to God to follow Jesus. Let's pray. God, I am just amazed at you. We talk about the things that we do, but you come first in everything. We aren't yours because we were smart or good. We're yours because you loved us and gave your only son. We're yours because you called us. We can trust you because you're with us. This is who you are. God, make us the people who trust you. And do it for the, for the name and for the sake of the one who died for us, Jesus. Amen.